You're listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little bloodsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Welcome, wherever you are, whoever you are. Um, today on the show, I have, a, I have a, uh, a fellow by the name of Simon Ocean. Simon is an absolute renegade. I'm not going to give his story away too much, but uh, what a hell man. I mean, <laughs> he bartered his way from Melbourne to Jerusalem and didn't catch a plane. Just ponder that for a second. Just ponder that. Um, an amazing guy with an amazing outlook and um, on life. You know, I think um, we can all learn something from Simon. Uh, and yeah, well, anyway, I'll let him tell his story in the horse's mouth. I won't do it for him right now. So if you've got a dog uh, or if you've got a child, you'll laugh at this. But um, I just got a dog and... It feels like I have a child. Um, I didn't really realize the responsibility I was taking on when I got a dog. I just didn't know. I didn't know that these things are forever and they're 24-7. <sighs> I feel like I haven't even taken a breath because um, dogs got me wound up. But they wind you up. It's like mental warfare. And you know, things were pretty, just I do whatever I want. Now I got to answer to a dog. Could be worse. She's pretty cute. Anyway, I hope you really enjoy the chat with Simon because um, I really enjoyed talking to him. I'll see you on the other side. Interesting. Wow. Wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total barfarama. So you, you had this epiphany in Tassie. Yes. And did you go back to Melbourne before you started? Yeah. So from, from the moment of epiphany, five weeks, I hit the road. All right. Because I had no commitment, nothing. Yeah, I love it. So you've gone... In your head, I need to do this. So did you know, did you have an end game? Did you go, I want to get to here? Or did you just head out? Uh, I headed out and my the original outline was to reach uh, Brazil for the World Cup, which was happening in 2014. So I left in 2013. And you know, I found a boat in Thailand to cross the Indian Ocean. Hold on. How the fuck do we get to Thailand? But we've got to get to Thailand. We leave Melbourne. Well, you asked about the plan. Okay. So um, I found a boat from Thailand to South Africa. And then on, on the way, stopping in Madagascar, managed to get contact with uh, through those ads with a captain from sailing from Cape Town to Rio. And he was going to leave in April, which would put us in Rio around May. And the World Cup kicks off June 13th. Plenty of time. I yeah. was like, yes, score. It's all happening. Reach, um, we pulled into South, in South Africa somewhere. We had to hide from the storm. So we pulled into a port, checked the emails, and I get one saying we had to leave early. I was like, no, gone. Gone. What does that mean? It means I have to change my, my route. South America has to wait. It's not for me right now. Because in my head, I went, all oh, right, World Cup, it's going to be really expensive. Mm. People don't even want it there. You know, the corruption of FIFA sort of really made me realize. Even though I love football, I love playing it, the whole FIFA thing is really, like the whole corruption that went with it, it really killed it for me. Right. And like this last World Cup that was held in Russia is the first one I didn't watch. 
So, I don't know what made me not want to watch it, but I just didn't watch it. Yeah, well, if you're feeling something energetically, I yeah. think you go with it. And so, yeah, and so when, when I hit Cape Town, I was like, all right, where do I go from here? I sort of looked at the map and went, oh, well, I can easily get to Ethiopia, but then I have to go through Sudan and Egypt to get to Israel. So hold on, can I just back you up? Yeah. You've in all these places, but you had the epiphany in Tasmania. Mm-hmm. And so from Melbourne, five weeks packing and planning, you found out about these boat websites. And then did you just go, uh, did you hit the nullaball? No, so I I drove my car from Melbourne to Darwin through the middle, through the centre. Oh, you went bang, straight yeah. up through. Awesome. Straight up through, Here's 17 Rock. days. Yeah, I stopped in um, Uluru, Kings Canyon, um, Devil's Marbles, Mataranka, all these places on the, on the on the road, not too far off the highway. I think Uluru was the only one that was, you know, three hours off the main highway. Um, yeah, all the way to Darwin and... I had no idea how to go about finding a boat in Darwin. I just figured I'd get there and see what happens. And I had friends there, so I stayed with them. And I would borrow their bike and just pedal to all the sailing marinas and the clubs until I reached uh, the Diner Cruising Yacht Association. Because there's the Darwin Sailing Yacht Club, which is really pretentious. Because when I went there looking for a captain, I had a shirt made saying seeking crew work. <laughs> red shirt big yellow letters huge lettering and i would walk around because there was a i found out then there was the indo the darwin to indo rally so it's like a regatta all, the, all these boats come from around the world and they sail together over three months through indonesia all the islands up to thailand and uh so I was, yeah i was uh, hanging out in in the sailing yacht club and i approached this this guy who <laughs> he was he was bald and uh and i said hi how you doing um looking for a, a boat heading to Indo. And he just looks at me and he's got his beer in front of him. He look, looks at me and he goes, you're a backpacker. I said, yeah. He goes, well, fuck off then. <laughs> and I went, oh, listen, mate, just because I've got this beautiful, luscious, curly hair and, and you're bald doesn't mean you have to take your anger out on me like that. It can be nice about it. I just walked off and thought, well, this place sucks. you know. And then Dyna Cruising Yacht, everyone is just tank top, big beards and just rah, 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 you know proper like oh proper sailors yeah that's where i found a captain that took me to indo uh, so um what size boat was that it was a 50 foot catch and it was my first time sailing wow and the only thing i knew about myself in water was that i don't get seasick that was the only thing i knew yeah whether i how would, did you know that uh I, every time like crossing ferries yeah, and all yeah, that yeah, i yeah. never had yeah. I, I just love being on water yeah and so when i surf i just i love the whole up and down thing yeah yeah and like roller coaster feeling i love that i love wiping out you know yeah what i call surfing a lot of people call it wiping out yeah <laughs> uh, so oh, i remember when i was a kid though yeah there was a famous surfer i read it in an article and he's you know it was about wiping out and he goes and just treat it like the like a ride in the park that's exactly how i treat it yeah and just um, go with it and pop up okay, I'm, I'm a self-proclaimed king of wipeouts <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you went to Indo did you surf in Indo? I almost died in Indo because of surfing in Lombok mm-hmm. which was uh, that was hectic where so, were you in, Lo- in Lombok? Uh, Desert Point yeah deserts hey uh, I didn't know anything about Desert Point me uh, so did you hear about the story of the guy who got his arm cut off there? No. Anyway, we'll go to your story first. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 
that makes my story seem really <laughs> like nothing. Um, so I was traveling with, with a guy called Baza who was going from New Zealand to Scotland without flying. And he had a website called uh, Going uh, the Long Way Home. And his, his shtick was to do charitable work on his way, also without money and raising money for charities. So we met on this boat going to Indo. Um, we were clashing with the captain. So after six days, we jumped ship. We told the captain we're leaving. Was this in Indo? In Indo already. How long did it take to get across? Um, it took four days from Darwin to West Timor. And then two more days to get to Alor, which is another island. And then in Alor, we jumped ship and we made our own way up to Thailand can together. I, can I ask what, what the captain was doing to make you want to jump ship? We just weren't gelling. vibing. Yeah, we weren't gelling. Yeah. Um, I, I realized by hanging out at these yacht clubs that a lot of captains or a lot of sailors aren't socially mm. there mm-hmm. because they spend a lot of time on their own in the water. Yeah. And they're very fixed in their ways. Mm-hmm. Very fixed. On this boat specifically, you weren't allowed to fart, whistle, burp, tap on the table, have your legs moving while you're sitting. None of that was acceptable. I had my guitar. I would ask, I would have to ask, <laughs> is it all right to play some music? And he just gave me this look. Don't make a habit of it. What a fucking like, wow. militant yeah, dictator. It was, it was exactly that. Yeah. So like, and, and the surprising thing was that Baz had been with this guy for two months from New Zealand, so in the Darwin. I was like, how did you two months with this guy? Um, but for his, all his faults, he was a great sailor. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. Felt very safe with him, even though there was no life raft. Do you think he might have had a bit of, um, uh, what do you call it when, uh, you know, someone wears their favorite undies or has all those little clicks and ter- uh, superstitious? Superstitions. Do you think that that oh, was... Oh, old the- sailors have superstitions. Right. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we jumped ship and then we, we traveled through Indo together. For about two months. Hold on, what happened at deserts that nearly oh, took Oh, that's right, yeah. So we reach Lombok and we go, uh, we're just hiding in this currency exchange place because they had aircon and it was really hot. Yeah. yeah. Like, we need a rest. Yeah. So we're chilling in there. These two guys come in, foreigners. We start a conversation and we're telling them, oh, yeah, we're going around the world without flying. And they're like, okay, we need, a, we need some beers. Let's go. So we go, have some beers and continue the story. And they're like, all right, you guys are going to stay with us. It's like, cool. Yeah, I'm building this European house and it's 18 steps from the water. It's like, amazing. Is there waves? No, but I know a guy. We'll call him around. So he calls up this guy, Suleiman. Suleiman comes around, asks him all the questions. Like, Suleiman, I'm a, I'm a beginner. You know, um, what's the wave like? Oh, mister, very easy wave for you. It's like, dude, you don't, even, you don't know me. How do you know how I surf? You're telling me it's easy. Oh, mister, very easy for you. It's like, yeah, that's not a, that's not a good opening. Mm. Oh, left barrel all the way, 100 meter, 30 second right. Easy for you, mister. All right, well, was it rock? Is it reef, sand? Oh, reef, reef. But you go high tide, no problem, no problem. How deep is it at high tide? Oh, very deep, very deep. All right, so we grab a bike. The next day, me and Baz go. Baz doesn't surf, but there's a photography tower there. And so when we get there, the first indication was the the sign that says Desert Point. There's a big cross and bones on it, skull and bones on it. <laughs> it says danger. And I and I look at the sign and said, hmm. But then my eye caught the wave. Mm. And I went, whoa. Because I'd never seen a wave like that. Yeah. You know, you see it on TV, on, on the magazines and that. I'd never seen it live. And it was amazing. It was six foot, barreling, 
and I think there was um, there was a surf tour happening, like uh, on a boat. Yeah, yeah. Charter all these thing. guys in yeah charter surf, yeah. and all these guys were in the lineup, and these guys just slamming out these barrels, and they're going forever. And I'm goofy, so it's a left, and I'm like, I swear, yeah, heaven, I'm gonna get my first barrel. Oh my god! Baz goes to the photography tower. I'm gonna get a picture of you in your first barrel, mate. So all this confidence is happening. I was like, yeah. So I walk in my my board. There's a surfer coming out. I said, mate, any any tips? And this is like the answer that I hate when you surf. Because if you're a beginner and you go out, no one's teaching and you ask other surfers, you know, how do I get this wave? All they say is, just go for it. I was like, that doesn't help me. Because when I go for it, I almost die. So this guy's coming out. And I said, any tips, mate? And he goes, yeah, don't hit the reef. Solid, okay, makes sense. I go in, start to paddle. And, uh, and I reach the lineup. And then I have to adjust my uh, leg strap. So, you know, slide off the board, put the leg on the board, adjust it. And then I realize I'm touching the reef. And then I sort of stand up. I was like, I'm standing here. This isn't deep. Hey, mate, is this high tide? Yeah. Shit. I think I'm out of my element. This wave comes up. All right, let's try. So go for it. Don't get it. Another one comes up. Go for it. Don't get it. Third one comes up. Go for it. Just rolls under me. It's like, damn it. And then suddenly this lull, just this silence. And I see all the locals just sprinting out of the water like Jesus, just like they're walking on water, but they're sprinting out. And I just follow them, they're on the beach, and they sit on the concrete um, seats. I'm thinking, my gut's going, ah, that doesn't seem right. And then I turn to face the lineup, the lineup's paddled way out. No Mm. one has spoken, you know, (laughs) someone usually yells out outside. Nothing. Just, everyone's gone. I'm left sort of, in, in this sort yeah, of no man's land yeah no man's land and, and I look back to the beach and as I turn around with my board and I'm thinking oh, I'll paddle out deeper I turn around this mountain of water has risen up from nowhere no no warning nothing just goes up and I look up and I keep looking up and I'm looking up and I'm straining my neck all the way back just to see the top of it <laughs> it's the bomb set it's gone from 6 foot to I don't know 9 or 12 foot and I look down the line and I say, wow, oh my that is God. a really big wave. Yeah. And then my next thought is, dude, you're in the impact zone. Oh, shit. And duck diving has never been my, uh, my forte, mm-hmm. but I tried. There was no point. Because I couldn't even go down. The wave was right there. You had to go through it. Yeah. So I tried to go through it and the wave was like, that's funny. Boom. <laughs> Took me out. That was just the first wave. Mm-hmm. There was six more that followed. Mm-hmm. And on the last one, I was underwater for way too long that I'm comfortable with. And I could just feel I had no oxygen left, nothing. And I just thought in my head, I guess this is it. Three months into my travels and and we just go out like that. Great. And uh, and I was about to just let my my jaw drop and let the water in. Just come to terms with it, really. Yeah. And uh, and suddenly I popped up and I was like, air oxygen. How can I see all the whitewash coming? And I just grabbed my board, took the whitewash, snapped two fins, was like, I don't care. Slide up on the beach, out of it, just completely just gone. And I'm on the sand, passed out, and then I hear this voice from above. And he goes, hey, mate, did you get a wave? I gather enough energy to look up, and I see it's Baz in the, in the photography tower. I, just, I had enough energy just to give him the finger. And, and then I checked myself for injuries. Yeah, and any cuts? These, Two deep cuts on top of my big toe knuckles. That was it. You're pretty lucky. I got shredded on the reef. I got like, it's like someone was holding me and just. Cheese grater. Cheese grater. Mm. But nothing happened. 
still raggedly good looking. Yeah. <laughs> my knuckles are like <laughs> half a knuckle deep with a cut. And uh, and then I have to do the walk of shame. I have to pass all these locals that had, that knew the conditions. As I walk past, dragging my board because I have no energy to lift it. And they're just going. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's not. Mister. Oh, mister, you got caught in blender. Well, that's a, uh, it's a well-renowned heavy wave. Now I know. Now you know, yeah. Because the next day, a friend posted a video of Kelly Slater surfing it, and then you see the proper footage and the angle's like, there's no way I could have surfed that. What the hell is Suleiman thinking? Oh, so I, then I, I yeah. find Suleiman. I was like, Suleiman, I asked you if this wave was easy, and you said yes. How long have you been surfing? And he goes, oh, me? I don't surf. I scared to swim. <laughs> All right. How'd you get information? I have hostel. All the surfers tell me. All right. So you've gone. You've survived deserts. Now at this stage, you've is that email come that you go? Okay, uh, Brazil's off the map. I'm going somewhere else. No, that um, that email came much later. Um, through Indo, I was emailing the captain of the boat that I would eventually take to cross the Indian Ocean. Okay. I was always one island ahead of him. Yeah. So did you go Did you go all the way up to the north of the uh, Indonesia? Went up to Jakarta and yeah. Batam Island. Yeah. Uh, from there, took the ferry to Singapore, uh, played a, at a wedding. The rest of Indonesia was um, not so life-threatening? Uh, no. But we would, we, Baz had used to work at um, Bungie in Queenscliff, mm-hmm. Queenstown in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. One of his clients proposed to his girlfriend through the bungee. He showed me a video. And that, that client um, lives in Malaysia. And he was getting married in Singapore. And he invited Baz to the wedding. And he said, you want to be my plus one? I was like, yeah, cool. So we were sort of on a time to get to Singapore by the wedding. And then I ended up playing a song at the wedding. And the guy hosted us for two weeks. It was really cool. Uh, but, and he lived in Malaysia, but worked in Singapore. So he was driving us back and forth. Singapore, Malaysia. We did three countries in one day, from Batam, which is Indonesia, to Singapore, and then when he finished work, to Malaysia. It was crazy, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and then up through Malaysia up to Thailand, and then in Thailand, met Baz went his way, and I met the, the captain in Phuket. And do you meet Baz again? Do you guys keep in touch? So he got work uh, at a backpackers in Kopangan, so we caught up for the full moon party. Um, I haven't seen him since, but we have been in touch. Yeah. Like we're, you know, we talk, we call. And he's, he's like a brother. Yeah, of it, course. You know? was, that trip really cemented us. Yeah. And um, he's, he's now married with a kid. In oh, a, wow. In Adelaide. He lives in Adelaide. In Adelaide? Yeah. Of all places? Yeah. Well, his wife's from there. <laughs> okay. So I met her when they were still dating. Where where they met? Oh, they met. Who knows? Before I came along. Oh, okay. So they were together for a long time. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so you're... Have the two weeks with the wedding, and at this stage, do you have what's your what in your mind? You got a plan? So at that stage, I'm like, oh, I got to get to South Africa so I can get a boat to South America. Yeah, that was all in my head. That's yeah. all I, I wanted to do. And yeah, in Thailand, I met this uh, the captain of this boat, and uh, had a chat, some beers. Okay, you come. It's like cool. So it was me and Captain Francois and the first mate Manu. So he's, both these guys are from France. And we set sail, and uh, I encountered some of the biggest storms I've ever encountered in my life. I've seen the water do things that has made me respect it a lot more. And 
A lot of life-threatening moments. Yeah, this is on the boat. On the boat, on the boat. which was a 47-foot sloop. And when you're on a 47-foot um, floating fiberglass boat and you're passing these giant 200-meter-long So if you just got to get a... Uh, you know when they sail in America's Cup? Yeah. What are they? How big are they? They're races. So are they how long though? Like? Uh, oh, I don't know what the measurements are and if there's criteria, but I think they're usually 30 feet. Okay, ones. yeah, just trying yeah. to get a gauge of the, how so, big they're... Uh, yeah, 47 feet is about 14 meters long. Um, yeah, and so we reached uh, Madagascar. So we spent five months crossing the Indian Ocean. You see some big sharks? Uh, I swam with reef sharks. That was as big as, as I saw. Uh, but we stopped in Sri Lanka and Chagos, which is, uh, do you know Chagos? Mm -mm. Middle of the Indian Ocean, thousand miles south of Sri Lanka. It's a, a small chain of islands, which the British, uh, the, the Royal Navy governs it under British Indian Ocean Territory. The US hires the largest island on that chain called Diego Garcia, and they hide it from the Brits in the 60s. Um, part of the agreement for for renting that island was that the Brits kick everyone out of the chain. So today you have 200,000 Chagossians who are misplaced people. And um, you can imagine you live on this remote, beautiful, tropical islands and then these people come and say, Fuck your off. options are the UK or Mauritius. So imagine being plucked from tropical island to go live in London. Oh my God. By force. And then there's no, they don't get a passport. They 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 have no rights because they don't have a land, and the British just said, well, "We're not going to give you citizenship or any rights. You know, you you guys handle yourself." And so the U.S. put a military base on Diego Garcia, and for all these years, no one could approach the islands. If you reached within 200 miles, they would send a boat out to turn you back. And then I think in the last 15 years, they've allowed access to the two northern atolls uh, for private boats. So you can get a one-month visa online and you just rock up. Waves? Is waves. It's the world's largest marine sanctuary, twice the size of the island of the UK. It's about 600,000 square kilometres. Untouched uh, marine because you're not allowed commercial fishing or anything. Sounds awesome. So it was amazing because, the, because these animals have never interacted with humans. You have these giant seabirds just hanging around in the trees. They don't fly off. They just look at you like, what the hell is this? You have sharks that swim right up onto the, almost onto the sand, black tip reefs, manta rays. And when you dive down, we do a bit of spear fishing. Manu shot a fish and then I'm, I'm pointing at him to turn around. He turns around, and this shark is like a meter and a half. But still, it's a shark, you know, and he's come up. He's a little curious and Manu sort of does a big movement. The shark goes off. I, I one time was surrounded by three sharks, which I felt a little, it's a little too much. Because you had food or? Nothing. No, they're they just checking just curious, you out. Yeah. yeah. And then I just, I just sort of starfished out and they zipped away. It was, uh, oh, I loved it. And we're the only humans there. It was crazy. What a, what a fucking great experience. But, but so much rubbish washes up. Oh, really? It comes down from all the currents well, that yeah. push it. So you get a lot of plastic debris from the shipping lanes, which is a bit sad. Jeez, we're good at yeah. Anyway, anyway, we'll carry on with your story because we go on how fucked the world is. If we won't do it. Yeah. Um, and then so we from so Sri Lanka to Chagos, and then we were a little low on food, on supplies, so we stopped in um, Agalaga, which is part of the Mauritius chain. Stocked up there, just twenty-four hour stop, and then headed on to Madagascar. 
and then came around the northern tip of Madagascar, sailed the west coast on the Mozambique Channel, so between Madagascar and the mainland of Africa. Yeah. And we're sailing down, and then one day Manu tells me a story. Man, you've seen some sights. I've seen some things. <laughs> Manu tells me a story one day how uh, a friend of his father's uh, had sailed those very waters at that same time of year, and uh, Francois was always hassling me to keep the porthole closed. And, like, I wanted fresh air all the time. Mm. So as long as the boat was listing um, to the other side, I could open my hatch. But I always remembered to close it. He was quite persistent in making sure that it was either closed or that I was closing it. And so Manu says, he tells me the story. He says, yeah, man, my father's friend, he left the portal open and this wave come in. And you know, a wave come in, a small hole. It's thousands of liters in seconds. And he sink with the boat. It's like, shit, what, in these waters, we? And I look at the depth reader, 848 meters. What happened to your dad's friend? Uh, he goes down with the boat. In these waters, we oui? at this time of year, we oui? okay. That's that's good to know. Next day, <laughs> I'm in my 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 uh, my bunk watching a movie on my laptop. Manu's fiddling around the galley, making up dinner. Captain's on the deck, navigating. And usually, I I, I watch a movie. The volume will be at eight or ten. But that evening, I had to boost it up to sixty because there's something happening. I was like, no, nah, I can't, I can't, I can't go above sixty. I'll destroy my ears. <laughs> I look out the porthole. What are you I'm watching? I'm trying to watch Tron, Tron yeah, Legacy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I look out the porthole, and it's just pitch black, like black. And I'm thinking that's not normal black. That's something different. So you know, I go up on deck. And the captain's there, and he's got this blissed look on his face. And like look, good look. Like a good like he's yeah. he's like it's like he's on acid or something. Yeah. You know, he's just like, hmm. <laughs> and I look up at the sky. And it's like you're in a can of black paint, inside the black paint. Like a black hole, no light escaping, that. Just looking up, what the hell? And the wind is howling. And the captain, he sees me and he goes, uh, check the wind reader. And I look at the wind reader, 58 knots, which is 107 k's an hour. And I just... I just Are you got sails up? Yeah, yeah, we're sailing. Like at half, yeah. you can't have him no, fall at yeah. that, that speed. And we are flying on the water. And I look back and all the bioluminescence uh, plankton that we're lighting up, it's like if you ever see on Star Trek. Do you know we have that shit out here at the moment? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, now? Nice. Yeah. In the waves the other night were like fireworks. Oh, man. That'd yeah. Be ama- yeah, it's amazing. So looking back, it's like Star Trek when they go into warp speed. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. like that. And I'm looking back on... Am I on acid? Are we in space? What is that? Am I on acid? Yeah. And the captain, he's just got this smile on his face, blissed out completely. This lightning rips the sky up. I look up. And you know when you're under a wave and you see the ripples? It's like that. But imagine black ripples. And you can't see any light. So it's the whole thing. And then, um, so, so I'm just sitting there. And because the captain's in such a blissed state, I'm not, I'm not scared. I'm like, okay, this guy's cool. Then I'm cool. <laughs> and then I realized we're in the eye of a storm, yeah. like a really big storm, and we're in the eye of it. That's why it's relatively calm. And uh, and then uh, I go down to help Manu with dinner, and uh, he tells me, "Oh, grab a can of chickpeas." So I turn around to the pantry, grab a can of chickpeas. I turn back, and the porthole above the gas stove is flipped open because this wave has decided it's going to come in for dinner. 
and I've never seen so much water squeeze through a tiny hole. Thousands of litres in seconds. Manoj jumped on the porthole, locked it. Who left the porthole open? It wasn't open. Oh, it flipped. It was just the force of this wave. Yeah. Popped it. So he's jumped on the porthole, closed it, turned the gas off, and all of a sudden I'm in knee-deep water. And I'm thinking, this isn't right. This water should be out there. And then Manu turns to me and says, turn on the bilge pump. So I'm trying to turn on the bilge pump. It's not kicking in. So Manu, it's not kicking in. So he tries. It's not kicking in. Oh, fuck. And he turns to me and says, okay, Simon, we have to bail the boat. I'm like, Manu, I'm not bailing the boat, mate. This is Madagascar. They don't have roads. You think they're going to launch a search and rescue operation? I'm not leaving this boat. <laughs> and he sort of sits me in the water. He gives me a bucket. Bails the water from the boat. I was like, why don't you open with that? Jesus. <laughs> Next three hours, I'm passing him up these buckets of water. He's pouring it in the sink. Has to pump the sink so the water pumps out. But he has to time it with the angle so the water doesn't come back in. So it's three hours of this. Get the water all down. The bilge pump kicks in with the last two liters. I was like, great. Now yeah, you now you work, yeah. Uh, anyway, we, we, we make everything dry. We're high-fiving. We're, we're alive. We're floating. It's all great. Captain has no idea what's happened. And, uh, and as I'm about to serve dinner up on deck, Manu says, hey, Simon, this is a good experience for you. You are experiencing the extreme side of sailing, huh? I, uh, yeah, Manu, I've been with you guys four months. All right, I can call myself a sailor since two months ago. And then, then I went, hang on, what do, you mean, what do you mean extreme side of sailing? And he goes, well, maybe you didn't notice no other sailboats. And I started to think back. So we passed cargo ships. We, we interacted with the uh, fishing boats. No other sailing boats. Manu, why, why didn't we see other sailing boats? <laughs> he's, he's just got this smile. You know, he's loving this moment. He goes, because, Simon, it is not the season for sailing. <laughs> Manu, if it's not the season for sailing, why are we sailing? And he goes, with the captain, he loves the cyclone season. <laughs> <laughs> you think you could lead with that when you invite people to sail with you you just by the way we're going to be sailing in the cycling season is that cool with you which would have been fine i would have said yes anyway so but how, yeah does he love it because he loves the thrill of the storm i think it's the thrill and the challenge because the first storms we encountered i was shitting myself yeah i would just sit there frozen panicked it was it was like that missile yeah, yeah. shot out it was yeah. like holy shit if i get out of this I'm going back to Australia. <laughs> uh, but after a few storms, you just you just turn into Lieutenant Dan, like in Forrest Gump, and you just start like, yeah, fuck you, storm. You call this a storm? <laughs> Hit me. Is this all you got? And it was like that. <sighs> the ocean is amazing. The water, the power of water. Oh. It's everything. It is everything. And, Horrifying, beautiful. And, and I equate water to... After all this sailing and the experiences, is if we're going to worship anything, it should be water. Water is the holy grail that everyone has been looking for. But people don't, don't realize that because of all the conditioning and the brainwashing that we go through. Why do I think water is the holy grail? Water is transparent, so there's no bullshit. Water cleanses. Water takes life, gives life. We're 70% water. This planet is 70% water. There's water in space, which makes it the most powerful and abundant element out there, which means that water is everywhere all the time, inside of us, outside of us. You can't get rid of water. You, you vaporize it, it becomes a cloud, and it rains back down on you. So water's been around forever. 
like since the dawn of space. So, you know, I, I had a teacher that used to say to me, you are Cleopatra's bathwater. And I was like, what? <laughs> but because, as you're saying, Earth is a closed circuit. Mm. Nothing leaves the atmosphere. Everything stays. So Cleopatra's bathwater, we're made up of water. Cleopatra's bathwater evaporated, went up, came down, and it's now dispersed amongst everything. And everything is everything there you go. in water. Exactly. But what do we do with water? We poison it. We fill it up with plastic and, and all our environmental waste and everything. We treat it like shit. And yeah. water will eventually, because water can spread disease, right? If you don't take care of it, it'll grow disease and spread it. And if you think about all the biblical plagues and everything, it's, it's that alignment of you know the water all right now we're going to wipe out 15 million people just because this bacteria grew in this water and then you clean up the water and everyone's fine and that's like the biblical plagues because the water is merciless but it's also merciful because as as much as it can kill us with disease it cleanses us because mm. how good is that feeling when you walk out of out of the surf it's a clean slate you feel Which. cleansed and washed you know if you're agitated or, or hyper or something, people say, just take a bath, calm down, have a shower. It's always water-related. Mm. Cup of tea to calm down if mm. you're angry, right? Mm -hmm. It's always water-based. There's that. Uh, there's, a bat, there's a joke. It's not a joke. I don't know what it is. And there's uh, some poor kid in Africa says, what do you mean? You, you actually shit in clean water? <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> like what? And speaking of that, like in, in South Africa, I was horrified when um, we were visiting this, this like, we were, we, were, we were docked in St. Francis, which if you know the waves in South Africa, um, Bruce's wave. Bruce Irons? Bruce. I don't know which Bruce, but there's a wave called Bruce's wave. Well, no, I, I haven't been to Africa, but yeah, go on. Uh, so St. Francis is kind of like Lawn, really small resort town, um, but very African, so very white. And when we were walking around, me and my, my, uh, this new crew that we had picked up, so hold on, you've can I just jump back one yeah. second? You've Sorry. gone from the eye of the storm, crazy fucking madman loves to sail through cyclones, and then you get to where you are now. You, yeah, you make it to, to Africa. So we get to South Africa, to the yeah. mainland, uh, and we docked in at St. Francis to hide from uh, this big storm that was coming in. Another one. <laughs> Another one. One of many. Uh, and so walking around the town, and it's like, you know, it, it's like a small town in Australia. It didn't feel... Africans like I want to know where the Africans actually live and, and all that so we went to what they call a township which is like a slum and me and my buddy from the boat we're, we're walking his name's Alex and walking through this uh, slum it's just tin sheds dusty road you know there's like no infrastructure nothing and walking through and looking at us like we're aliens because I don't think many white people go through there and so we're walking through and it's a really hot day and it's a convenience store we go in, like, excuse me, dead water. And the guys are looking at us a bit shocked. So I give him a moment. Are you good? You are seeing white people here. <laughs> Do you have water? And he points to the fridge and he says, we have soda and we have flavored water. What's flavored water? And I go and I look and it's all grapefruit flavored and, and all this. It's, it's transparent, but they've added some sort of chemical to it. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, I just want normal fresh water. Well, we don't have that what yeah we don't we don't have fresh clean drinking water we have flavored water or soda and this is what you drink yes that's a little fucked 
Yes. He agrees? It's fucked. Oh, it's completely fucked, but like, I was wondering if his find, education would allow him to understand yeah, that. If, you, you know. can find Coca-Cola and Pepsi anywhere in Africa, but if you want clean, fresh water, that's the challenge. Yeah. And that was, that was a real eye-opener. I was like, wow, okay. And so all these flavoured waters that were offering lemon and lime and all this, like, nah, I'll just go back to the boat and, and have proper water. So I get back to the boat, and I'm looking around, and I see a lemon... So I take a glass, fill it up with water, cut the lemon in, you know, bit of lemon in the water, and I turn to my buddy, flavored water, natural way. It's nuts. I, do, I remember when I was a kid and my mom sent me to the store. This is in the 80s with money mm. and, you know, get yourself an ice, icy pole or whatever and get me a bottle of water. And I remember I just couldn't believe that someone was going to actually pay for water. It's, it's like, astounding that we've... And, and that's the norm. It's the norm. But um, it's astounding that we let it become the norm and that no one thought, isn't it a little weird because this stuff comes from the tap at home? Why do we have to bottle it? In the Maldives, Coca-Cola put a plant on one of the islands. No one's allowed to drink from their own well because Coca-Cola is sucking up and stealing all the, everyone's waters. So all the locals are forced to buy Coca-Cola's bottled water but they don't know. No one's told them what to do with the plastic afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all around Maldives, it's all plastic because of Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. So all these huge companies, they don't take responsibility. They have so much money, they can build recycling plants and start cleaning up the planet. But they just sit there and watch the bank account grow. Don't get it. Just don't understand it. No, I, I, there's it's much that doesn't make sense. Um, and I, we can, I can get lost in it. Yes. <laughs> um, but all right. So then you, you're in Africa. You've had the water. You've, and that's when I had the email of we you, had to leave early. Got it. Yeah. And that's when I looked at a map and thought, all right, let's head, let's head home, visit mum. To Jerusalem. To Israel. To Israel. Yeah. So you're in Africa. So I'm in in Cape Town. Yeah. Um, and because I was no longer on anyone else's schedule, so it's always what the captain said I had to follow. Now I was on my own, had my own timetable, my own itinerary. I decided, right, I'm going to stay in each land for as long as the visa allows me. Uh, which so averaging about three months in most places up to Ethiopia. And, uh, which sort of made me move around and explore the whole country in different aspects of that country. Oh, my God. So, you know Africa intimately. Well, the places that I went, yeah. I don't know West Africa. I didn't go West because the Ebola happened at the time. No shit. Was that frightening to be on the ground? Not to me. No. Everyone else was freaking out. I was getting emails and messages from my family and saying, you got to be careful of the Ebola. Do you know how much they hyped it here? Do you know how much they hyped it it everywhere? It was going to take the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, And it really pissed me off. Uh, because everyone was saying Africa's dangerous what are you doing you can't you can't hitchhike in Africa that's crazy and as, as I progress on my travels I get interviewed by various magazines and they'd always ask isn't it dangerous and I would say it, it's I'll, I'll tell you this story right after all my travels last year I went to the to North America to visit friends and I hitchhiked from Michigan to Canada to cross the border to get to New York instead of going all the way down Detroit and all that 
So I cut across Michigan. It was a 15 hour hitching day. In those 15 hours, I got flipped off twice with a middle finger. Mm. I was so nervous hitching in the US mm. because of the very lax gun laws. Mm. And the scene from Easy Rider, if you've seen it, just mm. plays in my head. I spent two years, exactly two years, hitching through Africa from Cape Town to the Middle East. I never once was afraid. I never had any dangerous moments. I never felt once in danger of my life at all. In the US, I was on alert. And so when people ask me, isn't it dangerous? No. <laughs> people there are so friendly. But what you see on the news is so hyped up. It is beyond, you know, like, so when I was getting messages about the Ebola, I would reply, you realize it's closer to you in Europe than it is to me in Africa. And then when you look at the map, because a lot of um, comments were coming from the US and they say, oh, Africa, and they think Africa is a country, whereas Africa has 54 countries. Each country has like multiple dialects. I'm talking like 70, 80 dialects in each country because of different tribes. And you have up to sub-Sahara, you've got, you know, you've got a lot of Christianity, which is uh, a lot of brainwashing from the missionaries. But then you go into the Sahara and it's all the Muslim communities. And Africa is so diverse. And do you know the ski resorts in South Africa, in Lesotho, in Swaziland, and like really good ski? Really? I've seen pictures, yeah. I had no idea. There you go. <laughs> so no one told me it gets cold in Africa. I assumed it was hot. Yeah. So we hit Cape Town in winter and I'm looking at snow on the mountains and I'm thinking, nah, this, this can't be right. This must be a parallel universe. It's freezing in Africa. You get cold there, but you get really hot. Yeah. But the people are so friendly. Ah. Oh. And for me, when I was there, I could feel sort of this, this, this energy. And I don't know if it's because, you know, the origins of Sapiens is from East Africa, as we now know. But there was some sort of energy that was like, wow this place is just this is the place mm. yeah couldn't explain it no i've heard that before uh it, it's you know i've never have been but it seems like the last frontier that's exactly what i said when uh we were coming around the cape of good hope and first sighting the mainland africa and the captain was navigating it was early morning and i came up and i saw the sandbanks of, of all the sand dunes of south africa and the first thing went in my head, Africa, the final frontier. <laughs> the captain just cracked up yeah. laughing. It's like uh, you're narrating your own documentary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so three months in each country within Africa working your way north. Yeah, up to Ethiopia was three months. Yeah. Well, Kenya, I was, uh, stayed a little longer because I met uh, a woman there who ended up being my partner for two years. So I stayed in Kenya for all up seven months. Yeah. Um, and was she Africa, African? No, African? she's uh, originally from Calcutta. Yeah. But she uh, she grew up in the West, in the Western world. So she was Westernized. And was she there doing uh, like aid work or what was going no, on? No, we met on a boat building community called Musafir. Um, this guy uh, had a vision of building a traditional Tao in Kenya. And to have this DAO as a platform for alternative communities. When you say DAO? A DAO is... Uh, so is to a, get married, is it? No, no, a DAO is dowry. Uh, uh, a DAO is uh, D-H-O-W, which is the big wooden boats 
um, old school Arab dows, Viking like, stuff, like junks. If you know junks in Asia, basically these these wooden boats with a sail. It's just been built traditionally for hundreds of years. So like a years. small small one out of a usually single... they're small. He decided to go big and build a seventy foot one. Wow. Were they? Average? Is that one tree? No, no. So it's multiple planks. And okay. okay. It, all, it's, it took him six years. When I say him, I mean, so his idea was to create this platform where travelers could come and volunteer and help build a boat along with um, the traditional uh, workers that know how to build a boat. So the volunteers volunteer, the workers will get paid. Um, and so we met in this community. She was already there and I'd heard about the community. Someone put me onto them and they said, yeah, come down. We'll, we'll get you to work and help us out. So it was a really good community. And now they're sailing. The boat's now sailing. The Musafir, yeah. And does it go around the world? Does it have a small route? Well, or currently it they're just sailing between Kenya and Zanzibar. Mm -hmm. The idea is to sail to remote locations and sort of um, interact with those remote communities. Uh, maybe help with uh, providing something sustainable or environmental awareness or things along those lines. Um, that was then. I don't know what the objective is now. Things always change. Sounds like so, with your um, your experience now, you could get a Guernsey on the Sea Shepherd. Yeah, probably. I have been looking into it, but... A bit of military background, a bit of sailing around the world action. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's always something coming up that's keeping me from committing to Sea Shepherd. I would love to yeah fight for the ocean oh that's a great yeah. cause but i feel like i have to share the story first to the world so. yeah so um okay so you've met you met your girlfriend and you stayed in where did you stay for seven so months we we hitch we hitchhiked i took a hitching around kenya and uganda yeah she'd never done that, that kind of thing before so just opened the world up to her in that in that sort of sense uh and then we parted ways in ethiopia she moved back to india and i was this just because you were both on different trajectories and yeah how sad time. that would have been sad i can only it was imagine sad, yeah. uh, but we stayed in touch and then uh, eventually when i got to the middle east um uh eventually ended up going back going to india to try and make it work and, well it didn't work <laughs> well good for trying good, but you gotta try yeah, yeah, you know don't yeah. ask don't get yeah, that's exactly um, right so um you went in different ways and you hitched on up Kept going north yeah. through Sudan. Yeah. Uh, was that is Sudan dangerous? No. 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 Not for me. Yeah. Uh, well, when I say me, it's not not for a man. Because I I used I'd get a lot of questions saying, "Can I do this as a woman?" And I said, "I don't know. I'm not a woman. I can't be in your shoes. I can't imagine what women go through." Um, I think Africa is after my experiences of India. I think Africa is much safer for women than it is in India. Um, people just have a lot more respect for other people and I just I feel like in Africa from my experiences is because they're so aware of the stereotype of how they're portrayed in the Western world that they go out of their way to help out foreigners mm. and create a safe and hospitable environment um, for example I, when I'd hitch I'd leave my bags on the road and if a truck pulled over the truck would take a runway to stop. I would have to sprint down. I'd look at my packs. Nah, it's too heavy. Nah. So I would sprint to the truck, have a chat with the driver, 
keep an eye out on the thing. But there was no, no one was going to take my stuff. There was no implication of it. Nothing, nothing like that was ever going to happen. People would just hang around and make sure this is his stuff. No one touches it. And um, for instance, in Sudan, Sudan, I couldn't hitchhike. They wouldn't let me in the sense of they would put me on a bus, pay for my bus ticket, and that was it. Even though I was trying to explain, I just put me on the highway and I'll catch a lift. Mm. No, 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 no problem. No, no money. <laughs> so, yeah, no problem. We'll take care of you. It's okay. And, it, and because I come from this background of hating Muslims and Arabs, being in Sudan just opened my eyes up to this amazing side of Islam I had never experienced or seen. It was, first of all, it was, it was peaceful. Mm. It was hospitable. I think out of everywhere that I visited, it was the best hospitality I ever, not to take away from anyone else, mm -hmm. but just the way everything, every door was just open, you know? It was just, I, I, I hitched from the border of Sudan into the first city of Gadarif, 150Ks from the border. And then there the driver um, bought me breakfast and I managed to explain to him, I need to get the highway so he, he directed me because he had to go into town. So he's, he dropped me off five Ks into town to get breakfast. And I was like, great. Now I've got to hike five Ks in the desert in 45 degree heat. So I'm hiking through town. and someone, Is this where you got your uh, appreciation for water? Yeah. I've got to say the Nile water is the sweetest water I've ever tasted. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm hiking through this town with all my packs. And this tuk-tuk pulls over. It's a really um, elderly guy. He's looking at me like, what do you do? What do you do? So what? I'm trying to catch a lift. He didn't speak much English. So he's like, uh, Godari, which means walking. I said, yeah, until I get to the highway. He goes, you majnun? Are you crazy? I said, yeah. <laughs> That's what my doctor tells me. He goes, come, come, come. I said, no money. Grush mafu, no money. Come, come, no problem. All right. So I get in, ride on the tuk-tuk. I'm pretty sure through the pantomiming and everything that I explicitly expressed, I need to get to the highway. He drops me at the bus station. He takes me by the arm, drags me in, and I'm pointing to the highway. No, I need the highway. He's like, no, 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 you come. Introduces me to his friend who manages the whole bus terminal who speaks fluent English. Now, did you, th did you not think that they're trying to usher you away from the highway because it could be dangerous? No. No. It's they're just, just hospital hospitality. Hospitality, yep. and they, they couldn't understand the concept of hitchhike. Yeah, okay, yeah. And so when uh, he puts me in the bus terminal, and he introduces me to his friend who speaks fluent English, and I explain to him what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm, I'm, I want to travel by catching a lift. I play music for food and bed. This is how I get around. And he goes, okay, sit. So I said, play, all right, just take the guitar out, start playing. A few people start dancing. And he's like tapping his foot, okay, go over there. So I go over there, sit, I sit, play, I play. This goes on for two hours, <laughs> around the whole bus terminal. For two hours, I'm playing in desert heat. People are dancing, everyone's happy. I'm getting a little, little annoyed here, you know, time's ticking, it's getting hotter, I haven't even reached the highway. I've still got to get to Khartoum, which is 600 k's away. Yeah. So after two hours, I'm like, all right, guys, what's going on? Uh, he put me on a bus. Do I have to get to the road? He goes, wait, wait, wait. You make us very happy. Just wait. All right. 
Africa is all about waiting. You know, there's no rush. It's this thing called TIA. This is Africa. Yeah. Someone will say, just wait five minutes. I'm coming back. Three days later, they show up. So where you been? It's crazy. So that saying, it's in Blood Diamond, the movie, it's it's the real deal. They yeah. say it all the time, TIA. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if they say it because of the movie or right. that was already there. I'm sure it was already there. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, so, so I'm waiting. And then this other guy shows up. He doesn't speak English. And the first guy says, you go with him. You leave your bags. They're my responsibility. All right, cool. So I go with this new guy. And, we, and, uh, and he takes me to a bus, indicates me to get on. It's like, sweet. I'm thinking, right, it's happening. All right, get on a bus. So I get on the bus. And then he tells me, stay next to the driver. All right, stay next to the driver. He goes to the middle of the bus. He starts speaking Arabic, makes a little announcement. I'm not fluent in Arabic, but I picked out some words. Then I'm watching the people. I'm going, and then I see them giving him money. I'm like, oh, shit. No, he's telling them that, like asking them to donate a few bits and bobs for my ticket, which is not what I wanted. I don't want people paying for mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. If someone's heading that way, let's uh, share the ride. Yep. And so he comes back, tells me, get off the bus. I get off the bus and we get another bus. He says, go. He's like, what? Yeah, go. All right. Stand next to the driver. All right. Gets the middle of the bus. Does his announcement. People give him bits and bobs. I'm like, oh my God, this guy's busking on my behalf. We go back down and I'm thinking, all right, that should be enough. We went through eight buses. All the buses in the terminal. He goes up, stands next to the driver. He does a speech, gets the money, comes back. At the end of it, he hands me a wad of cash, ticket. I was like, okay, great, thank you. Not what I wanted, but that was amazing. Well, almost you were busking. Kind of, but I, I, I didn't want to busk. No, I, I see, yeah, play for, yeah, yeah. For, the, for money, I just wanted yeah. to get where I was going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in Khartoum, I realized it was really way too hot to hitchhike in the desert. I didn't do any research, mm-hmm. and I should have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen, learn the hard way. So in Khartoum, I was being hosted by a really good friend, Mo. And, and he says, you know, there's, there's a train here. I was like, really? Oh, do you think I could barter a passage on a train? He's like, yeah, let's try. Don't ask, don't get. So we went to the train station. The guy, like Mo was translating to the guy, telling him my lifestyle. And the guy's like, yeah, I like it. Yes, let's do this. <laughs> I got a free ride on a train. And, and uh, yeah, so as I progressed through Sudan, every town and village that I stopped in, they, they just put me on a bus, even though I was indicating the highway. Uh, one time I hitched a ride and the guy took me to a bus station. I was like, no, 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 just on the road. He just left me there, drove off. Then the people from the bus station come up to me. It was a really small town, so really just a little small um, station. And they go, where do you go? I said, I need to get to Donga, but I'm not using money. And this guy just dropped me. I just want to get to the highway and catch a lift. He's like, no problem. It's okay. No, no. I'm not using money. It's okay. No problem. This bus pulls up. Everyone gets on. And the guy's looking at me. Get on. No, no. I'm not using money. It's okay. No money. No problem. All right. 300 kilometers later, I get off the bus. In Donga. Just wouldn't let me hitchhike. Yeah. It's crazy. So... Do you go up through Portugal? No, no, no. Went up through Sudan to Egypt. Yeah. And cut across the Sinai to Israel. Egypt was interesting because 
because I, I, I had to hide my identity right through these lands yeah so you're Australian so I'm Australian but on my passport it says the city where I was born which is mm-hmm. Britannia mm-hmm. Israeli coastal city and so I was really hoping that geography wasn't anyone's strong point point. Mm-hmm. and then at the border between Sudan and Egypt customs officers looking at my passport and he goes where is Natanya? And leading up to that, I'd already prepared two backup stories. The first one being, which is what I told him, Natanya is a really tiny cattle station out in the outback. <laughs> so small, doesn't come up on Google. And he accepted that. I was wrong. My other backup story was that my parents were diplomats working in the Tel Aviv Australian Embassy. Mm-hmm. I just happened to be born when they were serving their country. Mm-hmm. Thing. So I managed to cross the border. And then in Egypt, people would ask me, oh, what is your next destination? And before I could even answer, they would say, whatever you do, don't go to Palestine. And in my head, I went, they don't have a country. Is, is there peace? Because I didn't follow the news. Maybe, maybe it's all been resolved. And they simply don't acknowledge it as Israel. And then... I, hit, I, I got a ride, I hitched a ride with this guy, went to his farm, helped him out on the farm a little bit. In Egypt? In Egypt. What was he farming? Um, sheep, and he was expecting about 4,000 chicks to come in. So we were sewing all these bags. I don't know how it was working, but everyone's got their system. Yeah, yeah. So I was just giving him a hand, and then he said, okay, I take you to the train station, I buy you a ticket to Luxor in exchange. I was like, and so did he feed you as well? Oh, yeah. yeah. How was the food? It's great, yeah. Let's just say I became a falafel connoisseur. Yeah. <laughs> um, Did you see the pyramids? Yeah. And, and Are they so, as impressive as... Well, I saw the pyramids because this is after the revolution. I saw the pyramids where there was no one there. Whereas before oh, the revolution, yeah, yeah, you couldn't yeah. get a photo without people in it. Yeah, yeah. So all my photos are just empty of people. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm on this train and everyone in Egypt, all the men smoke cigarettes, like constantly chain smoking. So when I was offered cigarettes and I'd say no, they'd look at me like I'm the weird one. You don't smoke? No. Really? Yeah. Why not? I quit. Why you quit? Smoking is good. It's not good. <laughs> so on this train, I was the only foreigner. Yeah. And there were three students who spoke English. And they were like, hey, come sit with us. We have a conversation. I was like, cool. And I thought, you know, I'm in Egypt. What's the deal with the revolution? Where did it all go wrong? And they're leaning in and always looking around. And then at some stage they're going, listen, we shouldn't talk about these things. There are spies everywhere. And the soldiers will take you and you disappear. That's it. And then I realized, oh yeah, Egypt's under military rule. That's a little different. And then they're asking, where are you going next? And again, before I could answer, they would say, whatever you do, don't go to Palestine. And I just, I had to ask. I said, I don't understand. Because Egypt and Israel have been at peace since the 1981 peace accords, right? 30 years of peace. And they just, without missing a beat, they said, peace is only on paper. We hate the Israelis. And here I am sitting before them. They have no idea that they're talking to an Israeli. Mm. And when you hear someone says, we hate the Israelis, if you're Israeli, you know, imagine someone says to you, we hate the Australians, yeah, yeah. but they don't know you're Australian. Mm. That is like, oh, Whew. And, um, yeah, and then some, so, so that hit hard, and then I realized I really got to be careful. And in Horgada, which is a small resort town on the Red Sea coast, I played a, two gigs, 
and and from Hurghada I realized I because I was getting hosted by locals. Now, when you play these gigs, are you playing um, your favorite covers or do you have your own music? Just covers. Yeah. But I twist them. Yeah. So they sound like they're mine. Yeah. Um, so, so I played uh, these two gigs at this uh, cafe called Jolly Jolly Cafe. The guys were like really, wow, what you're doing is cool. Yeah, you play for us. And I realized in Egypt, it was really hard to hitchhike so because of the heat. <laughs> So I realized, all right, I'm being hosted. So I could barter for food and a bus ticket. And that worked out great. Because I wasn't busking and I wasn't using the money to exchange. I would just come, there's your bus ticket. Like, sweet. So I played this gig. And at the end of the gig, this guy comes up to me. Big smile. He's, he just, he's like, oh, I can't believe it. And he hugs me and takes a selfie and everything. And I sit down with the owners. The guy's gone to sit with his friends. And the owner goes, you know this man? He comes to Egypt to study to be a policeman. I was like, cool, all right, yeah, where, where is he coming from? Oh, he will be a police officer in, in Ramallah, in Palestine. He's Palestinian? Yes. Okay. So this Palestinian had hugged me without knowing that not only am I Israeli and a Jew, I'm a former soldier that was fighting possibly him, his family, his neighbors. And this wave of emotion just washed over me. And I sat there and I had to pretend to be all, it's all good, yeah, it's whatever, it's Palestinian, so what? But I'm sitting there and inside I'm just like, holy shit, that was amazing. And I just wanted to go to him yeah. and say, listen, buddy, we're from the same land. The only thing that separates us is that fucking wall that they built. That's it, nothing else. We're the same. But I couldn't even do that, you know, I couldn't come up and couldn't risk it, it was too dangerous. Mm -hmm. But once you leave mainland Egypt and you enter the Sinai, the Sinai is, Peninsula is, um, it's all Bedouins. Bedouins love Israelis because that's their main tourist income. And Bedouins are different from uh, Arabs and because they're a nomadic tribe uh, and they're very crafty. They're good at getting anything you need or want and they're just really good hearted people. And so when I was in Sinai, I wasn't spreading the word around that I was Israeli, but because they had uh, worked with a lot of Israelis and because of my chosen fro, they'd speak to me in Hebrew and I'd be like, no, no, I'm Australian, mate. <laughs> I put on the soccer act, I'm Australian, mate. <laughs> what are you speaking to me in Hebrew? I don't know this stuff. <laughs> and, uh, but my host in Sinai, beautiful man called Bob. Bob is originally from Cairo and Egypt. I didn't know at the time, Egypt also has uh, military conscription. And the way he was talking and expressing himself about Israelis and then and in the end he was saying, we're the same people, I don't understand, I love Israelis, beautiful people. And I said, you know, actually I'm, I'm from Israel. And he's like, great man, look at us. That was it, I was like, oh, it's amazing. You know, why can't the whole world be like this? And we just, we just clicked. And to this day we're really good brothers. And every time I go back to Israel, I make a stop in, in Sinai to visit Bob and just go desert and red sea and everything because bob has got it you know mm. we have to spread that to the whole fucking region ah oh, man it's i had that moment just before when you were saying about being somewhere and being scared and not wanting your identity to come out and then i ha and then because i had that re recently but then i didn't have the added layer of i know they don't hate australians <laughs> But nonetheless, if that had been the case, I was just trying to think how much 
the ante would have gone up mm. and paranoia probably would have oh your sixth sense kicks in all that military training you're, you're switched on yeah. Yeah, yeah even though there, there was a moment in, in the city of Aswan I was this this guy he saw me on the street hey come have some tea everyone's like that in in, in, in Muslim lands it's all about connection so you walk down and say hey, come have some tea where are you going take your time see it's hot you know? see, is that why everybody smokes like goes with a cup of tea, sort of like something to do I don't that's know from connected. Why, but I, maybe it's that just something to do. It's probably that. Hey, sit down, smoke. Around. Yeah, yeah, it's just a lot of tea and coffee drinking. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there drinking tea with this guy, and then these three gentlemen walk past, and they stop. They see me in the shop, and they stop, and they walk back. Where are you from? I said hi, salam alaikum. Alaikum assalam. Where are you from? How you doing today? Give tamam. Tamam, Tamam, where are you from? I said, from Australia. Oh, we just arrested Australian citizen. Okay, for what? He's part of ISIS. You know ISIS? What? The uh, ancient goddess. And he laughed. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, not that one. You know which one I'm talking about. I'm not ISIS. Because yeah. you, know, you arrested one, else, he doesn't mean we're all like that. And that's the thing about what we do with labels, right? When someone from one country pisses us off, oh, he's fucking Russians, or he's fucking Chinese. Oh, the fucking down, French. The fucking French. Yeah. The fucking <laughs> but, you know, you can't generalize an entire population. No, of course not. And it all goes back to that whole, you know, it's not the US versus Iraq. It's not Israel versus the Palestinians. It's just because we generalize, it's what it becomes. US government and US uh, foreign correspondents Foreign policy is fucked, but American people in whole, beautiful. Exactly, right? So, and it's the same with Israel. It's once, but the problem is you get brainwashed up to your 18. So you're in these vulnerable years of when you're being developed and shaped for a certain way. So you can enter the army and you're ready. You've got this urge, this patriotism, right? You want to fight. You want to be there for your land, for your country. Mm -hmm. When you're in the shit of it, you realize, hang on, this is really wrong. I'm going to die for someone else's ethos. Exactly. And then you leave and you go travel, clear your head, and you realize, well, I'm making friends with Iranians and Palestinians. And well, that doesn't make sense. We're enemies. Mm. But, oh, it's the government. Mm -hmm. It's the government that tells me who I'm fighting and why. Well, they don't tell you why. They just say you have to go fight. There's no explanation. It's just mind warped. So been nearly at an hour and a half you've written a book i have do you want to tell us a bit about that so i've actually just uh finished the the um last edit on it mm -hmm. that i've edited to bring it to proofreading level i've got some people lined up to proofread it once they finish that send it up publishers if they take it awesome if they don't i will self-publish and force it onto the world beautiful and yeah, the book is basically about the way I was brought up through mm -hmm. that brainwashing mm -hmm. and then real and then reaching Australia and, and realizing through my travels, at the end of the day, we're just, we're just all people. I had a guy in Sudan because on my travels, a lot of people would ask me, what is your religion? So I came with this acronym because there's always a series of questions. It's, it's uh, I call it WADWA, W-H-A-D-W. First question, where are you from? Always, first one. Um, how old are you? Are you married? Do you have children? What is your religion? 
you step out of the Western world, and that's the last question everyone asks you all the time, everywhere you go. What is your religion? What do you follow? And so I'll tell him, oh, I follow karma. I believe in science. What? You don't believe in the Bible? I said, no. What? But this and this and this. No. And then they question and question. It's like, all right. You put me in this corner. Fine. I'm going to shatter your brain. All right? You believe everything in the Bible? Yes. You believe Adam and Eve were the first people? Yes. 5,000 <laughs> years ago? Yes. So Adam and Eve procreated, and the entire population of the earth, 8 billion people, all came from Adam and Eve. Yes. Adam and Eve had two kids. Really? A lot of people are saying yes to this? In, in non-Western lands? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Adam and Eve had two kids. Yes. What were they? Boys. Cain and Abel. So how did they procreate? What Eve the is the only female, and incense is a sin. Oh. Yeah. Is that right? I did not know that Cain and Abel were the son of Adam and Eve. What the fuck? The first murder, so Cain kills Abel. Ca- right. And one of them becomes a farmer. Is that right? One's a farmer and one's not. One's a hunter-gatherer. Is there something wrong with those lines? Like that, yeah. And so when I reach through Sudan, hitching through or trying to hitch through, this guy approaches me, throws me off. He goes, who is your prophet? <laughs> what? <laughs> who is your prophet? And in my head I've gone, well, I don't work anymore, so I don't actually have a prophet. No, 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 your prophet. Who is your prophet? Oh, that prophet, right. Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to have one. If I did have one, where do I put him? Like, where do you put a prophet? So I started to think, right, this guy wants an answer. No, I can't, say, I can't yeah. just say karma. Yeah, he wants a legit answer, and I'm in a Muslim land, so it's a little dodgy to say, you know, I don't believe in this. Yeah. Um, so I started to think, right, what do we got? We've got Jesus. Okay, Jesus, what did he do? He, he turned water into wine, which is a great party trick, but he got nailed in the end. So no, don't connect to that. All right, what else? Who else do I know? Moses, Moses, all right, Moses. He uh, freed the Hebrew slaves from Egypt. Uh, spent 40 years crossing the desert. I mean, it took me 11 days to cross the Sudanese. It's 40 years. No, I can't connect with that. <laughs> Who else? Who else? Muhammad. Muhammad. What do I know about Muhammad? Studied a lot. Lived in a cave. Wrote an entire new holy scripture. That's academic. I don't do academia. Fuck, who's my prophet? And then I started to realize I do have a prophet. And I turned to the guy and I said, my prophet is John Lennon. And he looks at me. Who is John Lennon? Is he in the Bible? I said, no, he was in the Beatles. And the reason John Lennon is my prophet is the song, Imagine. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, most people out there know the lyrics. Mm. How many people out there have actually stopped, closed their eyes, and imagined what John Lennon says in that song? Imagine a world without money, without wars, without anything to kill or die for, just people living in harmony, in peace. So, to building up to Sudan and traveling through the desert, because I'd have a put me on a bus and almost no one spoke English, I just have a lot of time to myself, just staring out the window, and I would start to imagine a world without money, a world where people don't kill each other for anything, no religion, nothing that limits us like money. If you didn't have money, you could research anything you wanted and find a solution. You, we would all be able to reach our full potential, but money limits us. You can't do this if you don't have that much. You know, you can't have a Ferrari if you've only got 10 cents in the bank, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But that limits me. What if my full potential is to drive a Ferrari and be this greatest Ferrari driver? I'll never know that because I don't have, I'm limited by what I have. Mm-hmm. And that is fucked up. 
And the fact that we have all, as a population on this planet, have accepted that, that we have given them power. And what people don't realize is we can take that power back. Well, we only accept what we... Well, what we choose, but most of us don't realize. Exactly. It's exactly that. Because money, if you think about it, money isn't, isn't real. It's, it's a made-up entity, just like religion. And if you have enough people believing in it, it becomes a thing. doesn't mean that it's the right thing. doesn't mean it's a real thing. You know, because if... What, what I don't understand... No, yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing that can give you things, but at the end of the day, it's still just a thing. Yeah. It's just that I imagine that it's that, and you imagine that it's that, so we agree on that. Yeah. But what if I go, doesn't, I don't agree on that? Then, then that thing's worthless to me, but something to you. But you can't understand why that thing is still... Yeah. And, and that's what really blew my mind, is when everyone around me would say, you know, you've got to invest in property, you've got to buy a house, you've got to fix your future up, and everything's <laughs> like... But how can you come to a piece of land and say it's worth this much, I'm deciding it's worth this much, you want it, you're gonna to have to pay that much. Who the hell are you to decide how much it is worth? Nature made it, nature is free. Well, that's the thing about oil too, it trips me out. Someone goes and takes it, something yeah. that's the earth's. From nature. That is from nature, that is collectively the earth and the world's and then takes it and then sells it. Back to the world. But they're taking it. What uh, anyway? I know it's not the norm, but yeah. So things like that, things like when when people in India, people would say, uh, you know, you, you should charge for for playing music. I I took money twice on my travels uh, for playing music. One in Thailand because I was being extorted by a street gang, and I had to pay him off. Couldn't barter that one. Hold on, what 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 happened there? <laughs> a street gang was street gang in Kopangan was uh, extorting me. They said you owe us this much money. I crashed the or, scooter. Oh, I didn't know it was a street gang scooter. My host had this scooter. She mm. said you can I can ride it. Mm -hmm. Very minor accident. I figured oh, it's going to cost a hundred bucks to fix just the scratches and the indicator. She comes back from the street gang and says they want fifteen thousand baht. And then she explained it's a street gang. I just rented from the cheapest guys I know. Right. Okay. So they want fifteen thousand baht. Where the hell am I going to get that? That's 600 bucks. So I had to get work. So I played a gig and they paid me 1,500 baht. And, How much uh, did you need? 15,000. Right, so, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, so they paid me 1,500 baht. That was one of the worst gigs I've ever played because money was involved. Mm. And then I ended up getting work in, at a yoga place and they covered the bill because I did voiceover for the yoga videos they had. It was a little exchange. They said, we'll take care of the, the street gang. You take care of these videos. Like, sweet, thank you. Saved my ass. <laughs> and then um, in India, when I was living there, I played a gig. And I was trying to explain to the guys, it's a barter. You just give me food. No, no, no. We, we pay. We give you money. And again, it was one of the worst gigs I've ever played because money was involved. But every other gig that I've ever played, I didn't have the limit of what I presented myself in the monetary worth. Because for me, at least, the way I see it is if, if, if I say, all right, I charge $500 for a gig for a two-hour set, I'm only ever going to play at the level that I think is worth $500. I'll never go above that. I'll try and always keep it to 500 But if I have no limits, if all I'm being paid for is food, basic survival needs, 
I let it all out and I, and I rock it out because there's no money involved. So let me ask you this question today. How did you get here today? I drove my van. Ah, you've got a car now? I do. Awesome. Yes. So the thing about bartering is it's really easy as long as you're constantly on the move. When, you, when you're in one place, especially in the Western world, yeah. I've discovered it's really hard to barter. Um, I'm sort of what I now define myself as sort of on the edge of society. I, s I sometimes step in because my car um, gets thirsty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so I sort of, I'm trying to find a balance where I can still maintain that sort of barter lifestyle, mm -hmm. but also I'm realistic in the sense that I know that while I'm in these Western lands, I do need to have money. So in the beginning, a lot of people would compare me to Into the Wild, and I would tell them I'm not Into the Wild because that guy disconnected all ties with his family. He burned his burned money. his money or gave it away or something and just headed out without knowing anything. All he wanted to do was step completely out of society, whereas I wanted to observe society. Yeah, or flow through yeah like but i feel like you felt like you're being part of i ended up interacting in, in many societies but that interaction was also observations and that's how i've reached all my my conclusions what we talk today is, is by just sitting and watching people and interactions and conversations and, and uh, yeah this. <laughs> awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming into the horse's mouth. Um, so you're down to lawn for the summer? I'm moving down tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Uh, it's my old stomping grounds where I learned to serve. And you're going back to work for that Israeli guy? No. No. no, no. <laughs> we actually um, managed to bridge our differences. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm managing a backpackers, hopefully, and just doing odd jobs. Cool. And surfing. That's my main goal. Yeah. Yeah. Might see a cathedral tomorrow. I'm not that good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Could be good tomorrow, though. Oh, it's tempting. But no, I've got to rebuild my confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. been a while between serves. Long point. Yeah, I'm trying to get one, yeah. Mm. Simon, thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Well, there you have it. There is my chat with Simon. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed sitting across from him and hearing his wild tales. Um, I still have the imagery in my mind of him being on that deck looking up at the sky with the black, the black and the lightning. Um, some fuck, just crazy shit. Anyway, um, isn't life really just a choose-your-own-adventure? What are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? Anyway, um, thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are, whoever you are. Uh, I hope the day is smiling upon you or the night is... Does the night smile? Yes, I think the night smiles. I hope the night is smiling on you too. All right, till next time, adios. Adios.